This morning, we are in Ecclesiastes chapters 11 and 12. Uh, We are going to close out our series going through this book of Ecclesiastes. We've been uh, looking at this wonderful, wonderful book, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, as Solomon has been dealing and examining and observing all of these frustrating realities of life. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Ecclesiastes 12.8, all is vanity. And here he's putting all of these different realities, the realities of life under the sun in their proper perspective. And I hope to this morning kind of uh, close out this series with uh, sort of put a a nice sort of bow on it, so to speak, but to really uh, hopefully instill in you a great appreciation for what this book is saying and for what God's truth says to us. And hopefully that is your heart. I, I have studied this book before, but I have found just such a renewed appreciation and affection for this book of Ecclesiastes because it is always so relevant for where we are. Uh, all of the Bible is relevant, but for some reason I keep drawing, I keep finding myself drawn back to these pages and finding myself reading them and find myself saying, This is where we are. This is right where we are right now. And there's much that we haven't even mined out of this, perhaps. There's much that you can do in your own uh, study and, and find so much in these pages. This book, Ecclesiastes, as we said at the beginning, It's sort of like a sermon. Uh, Solomon calls himself the preacher. And you can really see that this isn't sort of like a letter. It's not like a narrative like in the other Old Testament books. It's not like a a letter that uh, the Apostle Paul would write. This is a 12-chapter sermon of sorts in which he's going through all these different things. And he's narrating his own personal experiences as he has endeavored to find something truly lasting. Something that truly stays under the sun. And I think that a good way that we might sum up this quest that he has been on for all of these different chapters, this quest for meaning as we've looked at, for purpose, for identity, for settledness of soul, for for peace. He's looking for something that has, that always has, the ultimate guarantee. If you've seen any commercials... (laughs) If you've seen any advertising, you know a thing or two about guarantees. You know, uh, there's, I, when I think of commercials, there's one person I think of. And his name, maybe you know him, it's the late Billy Mays. Do you know who Billy Mays was? Does anyone know who Billy Am I the only one who knows who Billy Mays I have one hand. He, no, OxyClean. ShamWow <laughs> uh, copied Billy Mays in a lot of what he does. And that's what I want to kind of talk about really quick because I... I I like to it, it, look up any infomercial of the last decade or so, and you'll most likely find that it was advertised by this guy named Billy Mays. He's essentially the Michael Jordan of infomercials, if you want, if you will. Like, you know, the long extended commercials where they're advertising this product and they have all these people come out and try it, and it's supposed to change your life. It's supposed to uh, do something that you've always struggled with, you've always found yourself being frustrated by, and here's the key. Here's the gadget, the gizmo, the thing 
thing that's going to make all of those frustrations go away. And we can just add OxyClean and you have no more soiled laundry or kaboom and all these things can be clean or the awesome auger. I don't remember what that does, but that's another thing that he advertised. If you look at his list, Billy Mays, he has a long list of things that he has become known for, uh, for his advertising skill. Uh, he's a very enthusiastic guy. If you go on YouTube and you find these old clips of Billy Mays, he's a very boisterous guy who has lots of enthusiasm, and he's always very euphoric for even the most mundane products. And that's why we sort of remember him. But, and that's also why a lot of people have tried to copy his style uh, uh, since he uh, passed away several years ago. But uh, I say all that to say this. Because when I think of commercials, when I think of infomercials specifically, the long extended advertising things, the thing that sticks with me isn't the always high up here excitement level of Billy Mays. What sticks with me is the guarantees that they, that they give you that are always hedged. <laughs> They're always a guarantee, but with a 90-day money-back guarantee. <laughs> because it may work, but it also may not work. <laughs> This thing will probably change your life, but it also might not. So try it risk-free and you'll get your money back. Because it might also not work. <laughs> There's always this caveat. There's always this little bit of fine print that says that this will change everything. It will radically reorganize your life, but it also might not. <laughs> so we're guaranteeing you that you can get your money back. If this guarantee that we're promising you doesn't actually pan out. Which I find so fascinating to me. That man can't really guarantee anything. He can say that he does, but he has to hedge it a little bit. He has to sort of cushion it through some promises that actually you can try this thing risk-free. And I mention all of that to say this. I look at infomercials and the hedge guarantees, the money-back guarantees, all those sorts of things. And I can, you can really sense in some ways that this is the way our lives are lived. We are searching for something that is truly guaranteed that this thing will satisfy me. This thing will fill me up and I won't be looking for any other thing. That this thing will bring me peace finally. There's no hedges. There's no fine print. There's no small little disclaimers that says this might not work so you can return it if it doesn't. We're looking for something that actually brings us actual fulfillment. This is Solomon's quest. He has been searching through an assortment of, let's say, this infomercials. And he's been looking at all the different things that they've been offering him. And every single one has come with a money-back guarantee. Because it might not work. And he's found every time he's had to use that. He's gone to achievement. He's gone to intellectualism. He's gone to possessions. He's gone to pleasure. He's gone to everything that you can imagine under the sun. And he has never found something lasting. Everything has had fine print. This is Ecclesiastes. Why it's so crucial. Because it gives us, I think, wisdom to decipher between things that are ultimate and they are always guaranteed. And the things that have money back guarantees. The things that probably will not pan out. And as we close this book by looking at chapters 11 and 12, I think he gives us four lessons. Four lessons to, I would say, live the guaranteed life. Because that's what we're looking for. That's what Solomon was earnestly, honestly searching for. 
So stay with me really quick. Four lessons to live the guaranteed life. Number one comes from chapter 11, the first six verses. We have, first of all, a lesson about responsibility. A lesson about responsibility. Solomon here, as he's, clo- he's coming to the close of his sermon, let's say. And he begins sort of by dismantling, I would say, the, the, the primary method by which we try to guarantee outcomes in our lives. Which is by waiting for the most opportune moment. Look, look at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. Life as we've looked at. You can go to chapter 3, read the the first 8 verses. We've looked at this, that life under the sun operates according to cycles, seasons, pattern. There's a time for this and there's there's a time for that. And these things happen outside of our control. Seasons happen and we are made to somewhat endure them. Here he reiterates that point. Clouds come, thunderclouds form, rain waters the earth and trees fall. Essentially, you can say for verse 3, life happens. Seasons come and they change and things happen because of those changing seasons. And this is the whole point that he's been stressing throughout this. That life under the sun is just brimming, it's teeming with circumstances that are beyond our capacity to control. We can't control the weather. Whether it's going to rain or snow or whether it's going to be sunshine and bright outside. We can't control whether or not these trees in the forest will fall on their own because of these storms. These things happen apart from us. Therefore, as he describes in verse 4, waiting for the, quote, perfect time. Waiting for the most opportune conditions in order to do what we know we should be doing. It means you will always be waiting. Just like this farmer that he describes in verse 4, who is, who is not going about what he knows he should be doing. He's not doing his responsibility of sowing and planting. Why? Because he's so consumed with ensuring that the forecast is just perfect before he engages in his duty. He observes the wind, he will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. He is always waiting, because he's waiting for the most perfect conditions before he decides, I'm going to be responsible now. I'm going to do what God has called me to do, and instead he's just sitting and waiting. Waiting for the weather to clear up. Waiting for the rains to go away so he can properly sow the seeds that he he is responsible for sowing. You see here, this farmer, instead of working with his hands, he's sitting on them. Hoping that the situation will get just right for a guaranteed harvest. For something to be guaranteed to him. He's waiting for something to be just so. And the point is, he paralyzes himself. The paral- he's paralyzing himself by analyzing all these things to make sure he can guarantee for himself something uh, that would uh, something of a harvest, so to speak. And this is Solomon's counsel, because in contrast to that, go back to verse one. I'm going to read down through verse six, because listen to what he says. Verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight. For you do not know what evil will be on the earth. 
If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed. In the evening, do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Here you can clearly see Solomon's counsel. Be about your business. Be responsible to the responsibilities that God has given you. Don't wait for the perfect conditions or you'll always be waiting. Cast your bread. That phrase in in verse 1 sort of evokes this idea of commerce or trade. Be about your business. And in verse 2 he's talking about almost this sort of generous giving to charity so to speak. We are not to be hoarding of the things that we have been blessed with. He says, don't worry about the perfect conditions to give. The perfect conditions to conduct business. The perfect conditions to sow and be responsible. Cast your bread. Give generously. Sow diligently. You see, the point is... Just like this sower who never sows because he's too too busy watching the weather. So is the fool that Solomon has everywhere been referencing here in Ecclesiastes. Who is putting off living wisely because the conditions of life under the sun just aren't conducive to it. Life right now is just it's too chaotic. It's too, uh, too stressful. I can't live wisely and faithfully under these conditions. I'll just I'll, I'll put it off and I'll wait for conditions to get better. I'll wait for something to change to where it's a little bit easier for me to live wisely and faithfully. But the fact of the matter is, living wisely according to God's words, according to God's ways, as we've been everywhere looking at in this book, rarely, I would say, if ever, has guaranteed outcomes. He's noted that before. That, uh, that there's this unfairness that comes to play. And so even if we had uh, ideal circumstances with which, in, in which to live the wise life, so to speak, we couldn't guarantee the outcome of anything. Even with ideal circumstances or conditions. And that doesn't mean we should do nothing. Rather, that means we should ask ourselves, what are we waiting for? <laughs> We're like the sower who is not sowing because he's waiting for something to change. What are we waiting for for us to change what we're living for? To live for uh, what God has given us to live for. Be about our responsibility. Why are we delaying in what God has given us to do? Why are you searching for wisdom and meaning and guarantees and things that have already been proven to be empty? This, to me, is Solomon's heart in this, in this book. He's pouring out his soul so that we can see it and we can be wiser in our ways as we walk under the sun. Because we can come to this and know that this will not fill me. But you know what does? Eternity does. God does. The one who is eternal. He will fill me. And he has given me this responsibility to do. And I know that that's what I'm supposed to be doing. This, I think, is Solomon's heart. That there's 
No such thing as, quote, the opportune moment to live wisely and live faithfully under the sun. It will always be in the midst of adverse conditions. It will always be, so to speak, in a thundercloud. And as long as you and I are alive, there will be those uh, excuses that we can give out for uh, putting off our responsibilities. Just not yet. Just not now. I'll do it later. For putting off what God has given us to do. And it's easy to lose heart in this task. But Solomon, I think, is here stressing this, this most important point. That right now, which we're going to get to later in chapter 12. But right now is the best time. And actually, he would even say, the only time that we have to fulfill the God-given responsibilities that we have in front of us. It's right now. We're not guaranteed five hours from now, let alone five years from now. What are we doing with what we know we should be doing in this moment now? What are we putting off from enjoying? What are we putting off because we're so stressed about something out there and we're worried about those thunderclouds that may or may not hold rain, but we're so concerned with them, we're forgetting what is being put in front of us to enjoy, to relish in, to do. The responsibilities, the, the, the families, the, the incredible joys that he writes about here in Ecclesiastes. These are what God has given to us. A lesson about responsibility. Don't be so consumed with the thunderclouds that we miss what we're supposed to be doing here in the present. But notice, number two, a second lesson. A lesson about responsibility, but number two. Look at verse 7 of chapter 11. A lesson about rejoicing. Because notice, he builds off of this point that he has just made about responsibility. And here he is stressing this instruction to rejoice. Notice verse 7. Truly the light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness. For they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. He calls his readers here, his congregation perhaps, let's say, to rejoice, which is literally meaning to be glad. But it's suggestive here of this joyful countenance, a cheerful face, we might say. But this is, we know Solomon. He's known as this kind of dour guy. When he's calling you to be, be joyful, he's not calling you to some sort of glib or, or flippant joy in the face of, of danger sort of attitude. This is a deep-seated joy that is born out of, of an honest recognition of the di- days of darkness. Notice that's what he says. Rejoice in them all, verse 8, yet let him remember the days of darkness. We've noted there's vanities or as it can also be translated frustrations that make our lives under the sun increasingly difficult. Things that would make us say this is unjust, this is unfair, this is not how it should be and you're right. (laughs) 
It's because this world is not as it should be. But I think Solomon's point, as he is everywhere stressed to make, is that just because you and I cannot erase or we cannot eradicate these dark days from our lives, that shouldn't just make us just give up. Resign everything to fate or happenstance or to chance. Actually, it says, as he's saying here, it should make us relish and actually rejoice in the gifts we've been given. Knowing that they are all gifts from this one that he says will one day bring you into judgment. Everything that you and I enjoy are gifts of grace that have been given to us by the great judge of all things. He says rejoice in them here and now. Rejoice in them. Knowing that they are gifts as James says in James 1.17. That gifts that have come down from the father of lights. In whom there is no shadow of turning. There's no variation. There's no change in him. He is the one that possesses gifts that are truly lasting. Possesses gifts that have the ultimate guarantee behind them. Because he gives them. And therefore, what he's saying here is not just be joyful. He's saying, find your joy, your deepest joy in this one who is your creator, your maker, your judge. The one who holds everything in the balance. The one who is the ruler over all things. The one who knows the days of darkness from the days of light. Who knows that even, yes, there will be frustrations that come about. But he is the one who is, whose hands are upholding the universe. Rejoice in him. And notice the caution. Because he says, rejoice, O young man. While you are young, find your joy. Not in these things, not in the things that are surrounding you. But find your joy in this one. This God who will judge all things in the end. Find your joy in him. Because that's the only place where it's guaranteed. That's the only place where you can actually find it. And notice, notice this very interesting uh, detail. Because in verses 2 and 5 and 6. He repeats this phrase that you cannot know something, for you do not know, verse 2, what evil will be on the earth. Verse 5, as you do not know what is the way of the wind. And in verse 6, for you do not know which will prosper. As we've looked at before, there's lots of things that we don't know, that we cannot know as we exist here under the sun. But notice verse 8, or excuse me, verse uh, verse 9. Because there's one thing that we do know. At the end of verse 9, but know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. The one thing you can know is that there is an overriding, overruling, sovereign king whose name is God, the Savior, the Creator, Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is presiding over all things. You can know that. You can see. You can see Solomon's point. Find your joy in him. This one who is over all things. This one who alone, God alone, is the only source for life's guarantees. Nothing else can provide that to you. Nothing else can offer that. Everything else has a hedge, has fine print. A lesson about rejoicing. A lesson about responsibility. But jump to verse 1 of chapter 12. A lesson about remembering 
a lesson about remembering because here in the first seven verses of chapter 12, Solomon moves into sort of a seven-verse poem of sorts, which really describes uh, sort of the onset of old age. Notice what he says. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after their rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim. When the doors are shut in the streets, and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond trees blossom, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. These are very picturesque lines. They are very much a poem that you can actually just separate, if you might, out of Scripture and, and you can read it for all of its beauty in and of itself. But here placed in this chapter, it, it envelops us with a sense of decline. Some scholars have sought to apply certain allegorical elements to what, that, what perhaps Solomon is somewhat describing that when he's talking about, you know, the windows are growing dim, he's talking about your eyes, that sort of thing. He's, he's being allegorical. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if he's doing that. Because I think he's really just describing, he's more trying to evoke the feeling, the sense of what it means to go through life and come to the end of it and find out that yes, things have declined, have decayed a little bit. Where our bodies have worn out and our strength has, has actually been a little bit exhausted. That's what he's describing. Through all these very illustrious lines, that's what he's trying to get in our mind. And what he's saying is that that cannot be stopped. You and I don't have power over aging. No matter what sort of concoction cream that comes out, you can't stop the aging process. You can fake it for a little bit by putting it on, but you can't really stop it. You can't stop your bodies from wearing out. It happens all the time. Because as the old adage says, Father Time is undefeated. And he always will be. This is part of what it means to live under the sun. That despite all of our best efforts, despite all our innovations in health and medicine and fitness and all those sorts of things, old age affects everyone. I was, I think I was, I'm not stunned by this, but it was just surprising, alarming that someone can allot this amount of money to his body. I think it's LeBron James who spends, this is a made up number, so, but just it's around this number. He spends roughly $2 million on just recovery for, from basketball games. You know, he's uh, LeBron James. He's been in the league since 2003. He's been in the NBA since 2003. He has never yet sustained a very serious injury, and I probably just jinxed him, and I'm sorry for that. But he's never once had a problem. 
That's because he, he has all this science. He has a team of scientists that he pays with all of that money to ensure that his diet is just so, that his recovery time is just so, that his, his, his uh, workouts and his stretching, all of that is such that his body is in the most peak form of physical fitness. And guess what? One day he's going to get old and his knees won't be able to work. And he won't be able to get up. Because Father Time is undefeated. I don't mean that to sound cynical. I'm just, it's going to happen. No matter how you, and maybe he's being responsible because that's what his job is. But also too, we can't stop that from happening. We can't stop age from affecting us. Our days are numbered. Listen to what David says in Psalm 39. Solomon's dad says something really similar to what he says here in Ecclesiastes. Psalm 39 verse 4. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best, best state is but vapor. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. King David knew. His life was frail. It was vaporous. It was fleeting. It was vanity, so to speak. And so we can ask this question. We read these verses. We are having this description of what old age does and and how we cannot just trust in our bodies, so to speak. And what are we to do? Solomon gives us the answers in verses 1 and 6. Remember your creator. He bookends this poem with the same phrase. Remember now your creator before it's too late, so to speak. Before the silver cord is loose or the golden bowl is broken, verse 6. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel is broken at the well. Remember him now. Don't wait for the clouds to pass. Don't wait for conditions to change. Don't wait for something else to happen. Remember now before it is too late. This remembering is is interesting to me because in both instances, in verses 1 and verse 6, it's indicative of this active remembrance. You're actively keeping at the forefront of your mind these thoughts, that, these truths that have happened that are now going to shape your future. Shape how you're going to live in your present. It's an active remembrance. Remember this creator who guarantees himself to you. Remember now, before it's too late, before old age takes over, before death comes knocking. Remember now, while you are young, this formative truth that God is God and you are not God. And he has made you for himself. This is the best way to live the guaranteed life, so to speak, is is to live with the wisdom of knowing whose you are. You're not your own. You are God's. He is your creator. As we looked at a couple weeks ago uh, from that long passage from C.S. Lewis. That just as an engine maker makes an engine to run on a specific thing. God has made you and I to run on a specific thing. Namely himself. He is the source of all the things that we so long for under the sun. Peace. 
value, meaning, purpose, hope. It comes back to this phrase, remember now your creator. I get the sense that Solomon is preaching this and he's pouring out his soul and and trying to invoke this and instill this in his audience. Remember this now. Don't make the same mistakes that I did, he says. I squandered my life and all these things on the search for wisdom. Remember now whose you are. A lesson about responsibility, a lesson about A lesson about rejoicing, a lesson about remembering. But lastly, look at verse 8 down through the end of the chapter, the end of the book. A lesson about religion. He returns in verse 8 to the very assertion that opened up this entire treatise. Verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. It's almost in a direct copy of verse 1 of chapter 1. And as he is... Noted throughout, life is full of that vanity, frustration, difficulties, things that don't make sense to our finite logic and reason and wisdom, things that remain, yes, eternally frustrating. These things can often make us question what life means, what really matters, what's the point of it all. And I think that's the point that Solomon has wanted to have us grapple with those questions. But because of that, that's why in verses 9 and 10, you'll notice Solomon gives sort of this self-testimony of why he embarked on all this in the first place. Notice verse 9, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright. Words of truth. He's trying to impress upon the minds that these words weren't hastily written. They weren't just written by the seat of his pants, so to speak, just by by whim, by fancy. He wrote them in contemplation and seriousness with all the wisdom that he could muster. Out of all of his careful consideration, that's where these words were born out of. And for what purpose? Verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. His purpose behind all of this is that whoever reads these lines or would hear these words spoken perhaps would be driven to live by this wisdom of the one shepherd. Wisdom that stirs and stabilizes our lives to be lived wisely under the sun. Notice those two words, that the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails. Goads, like cattle prods. They're poking us, they're stirring us, they're stirring us to see what truly matters, what truly lasts, what truly has value. And the words, these same words that come from this one shepherd are like well-driven nails. They're driven into the wall and they cannot be uh, undone. You can hang your lives on them. You can hang your lives on the wisdom of this shepherd. And here, Solomon is wanting us to see that there's one person behind all of this. 
It's this one shepherd. He even goes, uh, you notice in verse 12, he, he's even uh, making sure you see that even from the wisdom of those that come after me and all of their books and all of their knowledge and all of their intellectualism, even for all of that, that's not where you find anything that's guaranteed. His suggestion here is, is, is more of like a warning. Not to put your ultimate hope in anything that you can accumulate. Your wisdom cannot uh, sort of resolve all of life's frustrations. And thinking that it will, will leave you weary. As he says, their study is wearisome to the flesh. What are we to do? How are we to live? How can we live the guaranteed life? It all comes back to the fundamental premise which has tethered this entire sermon To something hopeful. Which is verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. And keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment. Including every secret thing. Whether good or evil. We began by saying that if you wanted to spoil the ending, you could read these verses and know what Solomon is trying to say. But here we come to the end and we still find it so true that after all of this, all of the avenues that he has pursued and given his life over to, all of the things that he has tried, all of the infomercials that he has tried to cut through to find what is truly guaranteeing, he comes back to this one fundamental premise. That the only thing that's guaranteed is to fear God and keep his word. To, as the hymn says, trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Sounds so simple. And I'm not up here preaching as if I've somehow figured it out. (laughs) Because I haven't. Trusting and obeying, fearing and keeping is a lifelong battle that we will live because we are so given over to the things that Solomon has everywhere described that we want to figure out the future. We want to uh, hopefully make the conditions change by something that we do, by something that we can say, but for all of that we can't. And so what he is now here saying that this is the premise for living a wise life, fearing God and keeping his word. Trusting and obeying. Fearing that the God is God. That the God who created everything with a snap of his finger is the God over all things. And then coming to this realization that we are not. And we can trust him. We can trust him for wisdom and faithfulness, for settlement, for peace, for direction. This is the wise life. The faithful life. One that is, yes, still full of frustrations, full of mysteries, full of things that we won't be able to reconcile. But at the same time, we are made to grasp it in joy by remembering that this God gave it to us. And this God is there with us in the midst of it. This is where our confidence is found. Our guarantees are found by remembering the one who has sustained everything by the power of his word. This is Solomon's whole entire point. His conclusion is that the wisest thing that we can do is to exercise radical, trusting dependence on this God of all things. For the future. For the present. For all the days of our lives. 
trust this one. This one who is above all things, who is over all things, who is in all things, who is with us through all things. Just as you hang a picture on the wall and you're trusting that nail that will hang up. As he says here, we are built up, we are driven like well-driven nails. To hang our lives on the wisdom of the shepherd, to fear him and to obey him. This is the wisest thing that we can do. To cease trying to find wisdom in ourselves. To make sense of life under the sun. And to find it in God alone. As Solomon says. Let me read this verse before we close real quick. Proverbs chapter 2. Listen to what he says. Proverbs 2, 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path. This God, he is wisdom. He is the one that we are looked to, to look to for life's guarantees, the ultimate guarantees. And there's no better time. Than this time. We have no other time than this time right now to confess that. That I'm I'm done living my life according to my own wisdom, according to my own way to try to pretend that I am God and that I can make for myself something that God has freely given. I'm done living that way and I'm ready to live life according to God's wisdom. According to what He has guaranteed. You see, this is the wonderful thing about the scriptures. Is that God doesn't just guarantee you these things. The promise of the gospel is that he has guaranteed himself to you. That's the good news. We don't just have this theory, this idea of peace. We have the one who is peace, who is hope, who is all these things. We have him guaranteeing himself to us through the cross. Because this judge that was talked about is the same one that descended in our human-like bodies to take our sins upon his shoulders and die. The judge becomes the savior. Who becomes our wisdom. Who becomes our peace, our joy, our satisfaction. Living the guaranteed life means resigning your own wisdom, resigning your own ways to try to find those guarantees in yourself and finding them in God. And this one who will bring every work into judgment and this God of all things. Let us pray.